We'll, uh, we'll open up with prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for another wonderful day, a day that you've made for us. And we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together under your means of grace to learn more about who you are. And I pray, Lord, as we look into these truths from your word, that you would help us to discern truth from error and also that we would realize the great benefit of having faith in Christ, that is eternal life and a glorious kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, we're continuing on where we left off last week. Now, for those of you that weren't here last week, I just want to remind you where we are in the book of Revelation. In chapter 10 and 11, we're in what's called an interlude. And the interlude is an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Now, why is this important? Well, because when the seventh trumpet opens, it opens up to the final seven bowls. So remember, he had three sets of seven. He had seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Well, the seventh seal opened up to the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet will open up to the seven bowls. And after those are complete, the wrath of God is complete and the kingdom of Christ has come. So this is an interlude prior to the seventh trumpet being blown and being opened where you're going to find the final judgments at the hand of God upon the world and then his kingdom coming. So that's where we are. Now, we left off in a verse 7. Now, remember, we're in chapter 10. Chapter 10 can be seen in two parts. The first seven verses focus on the mighty angel. Remember the one who stood on the land and on the sea, which represent God's sovereignty, his right to rule over the world? Well, he had this little book that was uh, full of the final judgments of God. Well, that's verses 1 through 7. So verses 1 through 7 of chapter 10 focus on the angel and the little book. Verses 8 through 11 focus on the little book and John's recommissioning. Okay, so we're in the last verse of that first section, verse 7, where it says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. So who's speaking here? It's the mighty angel. And he's talking about the seventh angel who's going to blow the seventh trumpet, which unleashes the bulls of wrath, okay, which will culminate in Christ's coming. So he says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets. Now, notice this phrase that I've highlighted red, then the mystery of God is finished. Well, what mystery is he referring to? Well, the mystery in the New Testament comes from the term musterion. You can hear it sounds very much like our term mystery. Normally, when it's used in the New Testament, mystery has to do with something that was formerly concealed, but is now revealed by God through his apostles and prophets. So then it's no longer a mystery. So really the idea is that it was a former mystery as to how something would be or what would occur. And so the mystery that's being referred to here, of course, is the mystery of God's final judgment that was alluded to in the prophets of old, but was never given the amount of detail that we're going to see in the book of Revelation. The mystery also has to do with the reign of Christ. That also was alluded to in the Old Testament. Think about Zechariah 14. In the very first few verses, we see that the Lord himself will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's going to return. But we never see in such great detail as we see here in the book of Revelation. And so it's that kind of mystery then that is going to be finished. And so what we can ultimately say 
is not only is it God's judgment, that mystery, not only the reign of Christ, that mystery, but it's really revelation itself that is going to be finished. Okay, is everyone with me? And so we're going to need to know nothing more. And this is why we see at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 18, that no one's to add to the book. Why? Because it's been finished. Now, this is exceedingly important that we understand that the book of Revelation itself says that the mystery is finished. And that's why we're not to end anything to the book. Okay? Now, one thing I want to point out as well is that think about back in Daniel's day, the prophet Daniel. Daniel was told to seal up the prophecy that was given to him. Well, now John is building on that. And I just want to remind you one more time that God in Daniel said that he revealed his mysteries to his prophet. And I want you to realize that the book of Revelation is built off of the book of Daniel. Let me just remind you of that one last time here. Daniel 2.28. Everyone turn to that, or I guess you can see it right here on the screen. In fact, don't turn to it because I'm going to have you turn to Revelation 1.1 and, and tie into this. Daniel 2.28. Notice here. Now, remember, let's set the scene for Daniel 2. Does everyone remember that in Daniel 2, you had this Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of the world? Now, what was he king over, ironically? Babylon. He was king over Babylon. What do we see rebuilt in the book of Revelation? Babylon. Okay, so now you start to see a connection. Babylon and Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the world, right? Because he's the mightiest one. And he has a vision that's very troubling to him. And the vision is of a statue. And he has no one in his kingdom that can interpret the dream. Remember that? And he's going to put them all to death. He says, look, if you're such great soothsayers, you tell me my dream or I'm putting you to death. Well, (laughs) they all gulp and they're in trouble because they can't understand God's mystery. Well, who ends up understanding God's mystery? Daniel. Why? Because Daniel's so smart? No, because it's revealed by God. So listen to what it says, Daniel 2.20. It says, however, there is a God in heaven. This is what Daniel says who reveals mysteries. So let's stop there. If God had chosen not to reveal his mystery, it would remain a mystery. Okay? That's the point. Now, does anyone... uh, You have your microphone there, Brian? Can you read to us Deuteronomy 29, 29? And feel free, everyone, to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 29, 29. And this is a principle that you'll see all the way through the Old and New Testament that what God has revealed belongs to us, but what he's not revealed remains a mystery that belongs to God alone. This is found in Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Thank you. So two different categories. The things that are mysteries, the things that the Lord has not revealed, belong to the Lord alone, but the things that he has revealed belong to the people of God. Okay, so he reveals mysteries. Now, notice he continues, he says, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the vision in your mind while on your bed. Now, remember this phrase here where he says that it was going to be revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days? Word for word, what I have in the box there is found in Revelation 1.1. So recall what the dream was. 
the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and that was revealed to Daniel was that there was a statue. And the statue represented four kingdoms. It was the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek, the Greek kingdom, the Roman kingdom, and then there would be an offshoot of that Roman empire. And in those days, the Messiah would return, the stone it would crush all those kingdoms. Well, those kings that would come about from the final empire are those that come about in the, the 70th week of Daniel. That's what Revelation is all about. So what's very interesting is Daniel 2 is recording world history, which culminates in the reign of the Messiah. But here it says, these are the things that are going to take place in the latter days. Everyone see that in the box? Now, look at Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. And, and as you're turning to Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, remember that we are in the last days, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Now, why are we in the last days? Because the first advent of Messiah ushered in the last days. Okay, so again, the last days are not tied to the reestablishment of Israel, as some claim in 1948, although that's, I think, an important event. But according to Scripture, the last days are tied to the first advent of Messiah. So, Revelation 1.1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Does everyone see that phrase, the things which must soon take place? The term literally is imminently. Well, that is identical in the Greek to what you see in the box. If you compare the Old Testament Septuagint to Revelation 1.1. So notice what's being replaced is the things that will take place in the latter days with now in Revelation 1.1, it's the things that must take place soon, imminently. Why? Because we're in the last days. Okay, so my point in showing you this is to, again, with Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, he was commanded by God to seal up that which was revealed to him, or not all that was revealed to him, but there was things that he couldn't give him, right? There remained a mystery. But now, in Revelation chapter 10, that mystery is being revealed. It's no longer sealed up because we're in the last days, and now these things are going to be revealed about the final kingdom and the king that's coming. All right? Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice in the bold back in Revelation 10, 7, it says, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. It's very important that we realize that God reveals his secrets not to every single person, but he reveals them through his chosen spokesperson, the prophets. In the New Testament, it would be the apostles and prophets. If God didn't do that, then you'd, these secrets would remain a secret. Okay? Now, one thing I want to just mention is, let's talk about miracles for a moment. Miracles in the Bible interestingly enough, are not used to design or designed to show that God exists. That was the worldview of the people of Israel. But miracles are designed to prove who God's spokespeople were. And that's why you see in Hebrews chapter 2, for example, that the apostles did miraculous things. Okay, this is why you see in Acts 5, the shadow of Peter falls upon somebody and they would be healed. Okay, why? Because it was being proven by God, that these were his spokespeople, okay? Now, let's talk about the fact that God reveals his mystery through his spokespeople. Amos 3, 7. Remember, Amos is heavily influenced about the idea of the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord 
is all the way through the book of Amos. Listen to what he says. He says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. So God acts, but when he acts, he's going to reveal what he does through his servants, the prophets. If he does not, it remains something secret, and it's a mystery. But if God reveals it, it's no longer a mystery. We see the same thing in Ephesians 3, 3 through 5. Listen to what Paul says. He says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. So stop there. How did Paul come up with the scriptures that he wrote? He claims it was by revelation. God revealed it to him. Verse 4, he says, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So what is this mystery of Christ? Well, he's going to explain. He says, Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Does everyone see that he revealed this mystery to the apostles and prophets? Now, what's interesting is Paul here is talking about a mystery that was certainly alluded to in the Old Testament. Remember back in Genesis 12, 3? The promise was that Abraham would be a blessing to how many people? To all the nations. So when Paul here is revealing the mystery that in fact Gentiles and Jews would be partakers of the promise, it's not something that was unheard of, but it's the amount of detail that's being unpacked. In the same way, the Old Testament foretold a judgment that would come upon the world but it was unheard of, the detail of as to how this would occur until you get to the book of Revelation. Does that make sense? So a lot of these things are alluded to in prior Revelation, but they're more fully revealed under the New Covenant. Okay, now again, if God does not reveal something through his apostles and prophets, it remains a secret. Okay, now, why do I show you this? Well, because there are so many books today that claim to reveal secrets and mysteries. Now, I'm going to use just one example because I'm familiar with it. That is the book, The Harbinger. Now, I'm going to show you what The Harbinger claims to prove, but think about any book that people write today where they claim to reveal a mystery or a secret. Okay, if someone is claiming to reveal a mystery or secret, what I want you to do is to be able to follow a procedure that I think we should follow biblically. The procedure is threefold. When it comes to a secret... Number one, if it's revealed by an apostle and prophet, yes, it's a secret or a mystery that we can know. Okay? Remember what Brian read, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The things that God has revealed to us belong to us and our children forever, but the things that he has not revealed belong to the Lord God. Okay? So, number one, if it's revealed by an apostle or prophet, we can know it. But if the mystery is not revealed by an apostle or prophet, in other words, it's not found in our scripture, there's only two options. The mystery comes from divination or the mystery is simply made up. Now, those aren't good options, are there? Are they? Okay, so you really have three options. If it's not revealed in here, the mystery is either going to be revealed through divination or it's made up, it's not true. All right, those are the only possibilities, those three. Now, let's look at the harbinger here. This is written by a man named Jonathan Kahn. Notice what the subtitle says. It's the ancient mystery that holds the secret 
of America's future. Now, he's claiming to reveal a mystery and a secret about America. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to put it through that grid. If it's revealed by the prophet, he claims it's revealed by the prophet Isaiah. We're going to look at that. If it's not revealed by a prophet in Scripture, well, then the only way you could get a mystery is through divination or he made it up and you shouldn't listen to him. Okay, that's what God said of prophets who made things up, Deuteronomy 18.22. Okay, now let me just read further. This is from Jonathan Kahn himself on his website regarding the harbinger. He says this, he asked the question, is it possible that there exists an ancient mystery that holds the secret of America's future? That this mystery lies behind everything from 9-11 to the collapse of the global economy? that ancient harbingers of judgment are now manifesting in America, that God is sending America a prophetic message of what is yet to come. Now let's stop. Let's just think about what we read in Revelation 10.7. Didn't John say that with the outbreaking of this seventh trumpet, the mystery is finished? Well, now why is Jonathan Kahn feel free to reveal a new mystery? Because when we read our scriptures in Revelation 22, 18, no one's to add to this book. Why? Because the mystery is complete from Genesis to Revelation. So now he's revealing a new mystery, a new secret about America. Now, to be fair, he'll claim that this secret is revealed in scripture. But let's examine that claim. Let's look at the claim that Jonathan Kahn is making. The claim that he's making boils down to a verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10. And we'll turn to this in just a moment. In Isaiah 9.10, God's people were boasting that even if judgment would come and God would tear down their bricks, they would build with smooth stones. Even if judgment would come and God would get rid of all of their sycamore trees, they would replant mightier cedars. And so these people were boasting. And so what Jonathan Kahn says is, look, Americans did the same thing at 9-11. When our buildings collapsed because of the terrorists, people in our government were boasting, we'll rebuild bigger and better. And therefore, this prophecy can really be applied to America. Therefore, we're under the wrath of God. Is everyone with me? But let's take a close examination of Isaiah 9, because what we want to do is to say, look, our grid is threefold. If the mystery is revealed by a prophet, it's valid. But if it's not, then it's either gathered by divination or it's just simply made up. It's not valid. Yeah? Um, can you just explain the difference between uh, dictation theory and inspiration? Yeah, as far as inspiration of Scripture. Good, good question. Thanks, Leanne. Um, the question is between, when it comes to inspiration, uh, for, for example, think of 2 Timothy 3, 5. Um, excuse me, 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17 where it says all scripture is God-breathed, literally breathed out by God, what scholars wrestle with is in what way does God inspire scripture? One theory is called the dictation theory, and that is where God says to Paul, Paul, write this, and then he writes, and he just tells him word for word what to write, okay? And so there's just a dictation, just God speaks and he just writes, Okay, now that's certainly possible, and in some cases you see evidence of that. However, the view that I would hold to, it's called the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Verbal means every word is inspired by God. Plenary means the whole thing is inspired by God. But the difference between that and dictation 
is that in the verbal plenary view, God uses the personality of the author, okay? So that every word is the very word that God wants, but he uses the mind of the author, okay? So, for example, why is there such great differences in the writing capabilities of John from the writer of Hebrews, okay? Well, you would expect if the dictation theory were true, you would see the same ability in Greek all the way through the New Testament. You don't see that, okay? So certainly every word we can say yes is the very word that God wants, but he does use the mind of the author, okay? So Paul will have a different type of uh, language and terms that he uses uh, as opposed to John, but every word that John and Paul write are in fact the very words that God want them to write. Okay, does that help, Luann? Well, it does, and then it just makes me wonder, like somebody like Jonathan Kahn or anyone who's claiming to hear from God today, they're kind of under that dictation theory. God is, you know, directly speaking these words. Yeah, very well said. Yeah, and I, I would think that charismatics sometimes fall in the same, the same error where they think that they're hearing revelation from God. Yeah, subjectively, not through Scripture. Right. Now, Jonathan Kahn's claim, and that's what we'll look at here, is that Isaiah 9.10 can be applied to America. But let's look at that. Everyone turn your Bibles to Isaiah 9. We'll look at 1 through 11. This is just one example of how I think we should treat any book that claims to reveal a mystery. Again, if they're claiming that the mystery is revealed by a prophet or an apostle, look at the text. If it's a mystery that's not revealed in Scripture, then the only way you could have a mystery is through divination or simply made up it's not valid. Okay, so it has to be revealed in Scripture. That's the point. So let's look at Jonathan Kahn's claim that Isaiah 9.10 can be applied to America. Let's begin Isaiah 9.1. It says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, that's God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Now, let's stop there. Where is Zebulun and Naphtali? Well, Naphtali and Zebulun are in the areas of Upper and Lower Galilee. Okay, that's the region. Now, why is he talking about God treating them with contempt? Well, because under Jeroboam II, there was a great earthquake. Then they were invaded by the Syrians during the reign of the king Menahem. And then later, of course, during the reign of Hoshea, you have the Assyrians come and absolutely devastate the northern kingdom in 722. Okay, so that's why Isaiah is saying this. They were always the first to see the enemy of the north. Why? Because they're in the north. Does everyone see that? Okay, so he continues. He says, but later on, so he showed contempt to them earlier, but later on, and you'll see this is in the Messianic day, later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So he's talking about the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So let's stop there. What Isaiah is saying is even though these people who lived in the Galilee region were the first to receive judgment at the hands of the Assyrians, etc., they would be the first to see the messianic light. In fact, that passage is applied to the beginning of Christ's ministry in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Okay, so this is applied 
by Matthew to say that when Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, it was fulfilling that text. That those who lived in darkness in Galilee, they saw the messianic light. So the first to see judgment would be the first to see messianic light. So God is giving them comfort about the future. Now let's stop there. Just eight verses from now, we're going to see a text that Jonathan Kahn is applying to America. Now let's try to apply this to America. Because in context, verse 10 can't be divorced from what we just read. Was America the first to experience messianic salvation? It's not a good idea, is it? (laughs) Okay, do you see the trouble? We're really reading into the text now. If we want to make verse 10 apply to America, how do we apply this to America? It doesn't make sense. So let's just leave it applied to Israel. They were the first to experience messianic salvation in the northern Galilee region. So you can start to see the issues now. Let's continue. He says, You shall multiply the nation... You shall increase their gladness. They will, they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of a harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. So let's stop there. Remember the Midianites were smitten by Gideon. God raised up that judge Gideon to wipe out the mortal enemies of Israel at the time, the Midianites. Right? So he's going to say, hey, it's going to be like this in the Messianic age. Now, that's what we're reading about in Revelation. When Messiah comes, he gets rid of all the enemies. And he's going to set them up in their kingdom. So this is what it's talking about. Now, verse 5, he says, For every boot of the booted warrior and the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Now, verse 6, you've all heard this a time or two. For a child will be born to us. Now, stop there. The four is a conjunction key. And it shows us on what basis is it true that God is going to take these people who are always being smacked around by Syria and Assyria, and they're always under judgment by their neighbors. How in the world is he going to perform this reversal? How in the world are the people of Israel ever going to experience this joy? And all of a sudden in verse 6, out of the blue, four. Here's the reason. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Stop there for just a moment. Wonderful. Does everyone see the term wonderful? It comes from the Hebrew term palah. Palah. And what's so neat is, do you remember when Abraham is being promised that he's going to have a son, even though Sarah's so old and he's so old. And in fact, they laugh at God. And the angel of Yahweh, who is Christ himself, says, is anything too difficult for Yahweh? Why are you guys laughing? The term is palah. He's literally saying, is anything too wonderful for Yahweh? Is anything too miraculous for him? So the term wonderful here is literally a miracle worker. So he's not just a wonderful counselor. He's a miracle worker. Is anything too miraculous for Yahweh? That's who he is. He's a miraculous, wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. So not only is he a son, here you have the, in, here you have the, the hypostatic union foretold. Truly man, truly God. He's a son, but he's also mighty God. He's the God man, isn't he? He's eternal father, prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So stop there. Now, just three verses after this, Jonathan Kahn is going to apply verse 10 
to America. Now, can you apply for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given? Can you apply that to America? When in America was the Messiah born? No. That would be bad teaching, wouldn't it? So let's not tolerate that. So why would we tolerate then just a few verses later? Because they're all connected, you see. Why would we tolerate that being connected to America? So let's keep reading. So we're in verse 8. It says, The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel. So stop there. Can you be any more clear in verse 8 that this message of judgment is on Israel? So, verse 9. And he says, And all the people know it, that is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. Now, here's their pride. This is the attitude of the people of Israel as Isaiah is writing this. The, they, they say this, quote, They're boasting, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedar. So stop there. Notice they're boasting. They lost something of less value, bricks. They're going to replace it with something of greater value or prestige, smooth stones. They lost their ugly sycamores, but they're going to replace them with the mightier cedars. So they're boasting. Now, Jonathan Kahn's claim is that this is what America did that we boasted that when the buildings fell down, the trade centers, that America boasted in rebuilding. And so, therefore, we're committing the same crime that Israel is, and therefore, we're under the same judgment. Okay, in fact, verse 11, he says, Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from Rezin, that's Syria, and spurs their enemies on. Now, here's my point. If this whole passage only applies to Israel... Can we really apply it to America? I don't think so. And the only way Jonathan Kahn can try to claim that it applies to America is by trying to claim that America has a covenant with God. Now, that's one of the reasons that Bob and I have been showing you Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10. Remember in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, all the nations were given over to whom? To the demonic realm, to the host of heaven. But there was one nation alone that belonged to Yahweh. Who is that? It's Israel. So did any other nation ever have a covenant with Yahweh? No. And therefore, you can't apply judgment that comes upon Israel as God's covenant nation and a message and a passage that's specifically for them to America. So certainly, the application that Isaiah 9.10 is talking about America and that somehow we're under the wrath of God would be a false application. We would have to judge it as such. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Real good. Um, a lot of people like to think America has prophets, mm. but, and this guy would be one of them, but it's just not true. Yeah. There are no prophets. They're infallible. Yeah. Uh, he wrote another book after this that I wrote an article about. Yeah. Okay? A mutual friend of Eric and I was just screaming mad at me. <laughs> See, this con claimed that in November, October or November of 2015, we're going to have an economic collapse because of the seven-year cycle. And so I wrote my article in July, and I said uh, he claims we're going to have an economic collapse, but we have no way of knowing if that's true or not. And I just examined his categories. Yeah. To show they were wrong, like you're doing. Yeah. So I get these nasty letters, yeah. nasty hate mail, like I'm some evil person. 
And, well, if you really know he's right and all the stocks are going to crash in November, go cash in. You know know how you do that? (laughs) Buy short. Yeah. (laughs) All you got to know is what direction it's going to make money. Right, exactly. If it goes down, you can profit on that. Yeah. Well, whatever. Well, never. Did it happen? No. Not one of these angry people contacted me and apologized for being so mean and nasty. I was just trying to keep them from losing their money. Right. Amen. Exactly right. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. Exactly right. So, the yeah, Eric. Oh, I'm sorry, this Jen. This is just really quick. I've heard this before. That Jonathan Kahn's last name should be spelled C-O-N. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It is a con. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this is just excellent. <laughs> I read that book, and I thought, I'm, a, I'm a reg- just a regular guy. I read sure. the Bible. And, and uh, what I was going to say is that uh, what Jonathan Kahn brought up is he brought up how many politicians read this thing. Exactly. It's like we're going to give a little bit of scripture to the, to the rubes in flyover country. Exactly. In other words, there's several levels of lessons to be learned here. Jonathan Kahn, he misapplied scripture. Yes. But the politicians just randomly took something, and it was even dumber. Yeah, exactly. It's like the movie <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. Exactly. Well and, said, and, yeah. And, like, for me, I'm pretty dumb. You know, I yeah. read the book, and I thought, yeah, you know, look at how dumb these politicians were. Right. But when we look more f- completely at the context here, we realize, yeah. and because I'm, I, 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 I do understand the idea that we draw lessons from what the yes. Bible has yes. to teach yeah. us, but we have to be careful. Exactly. And, and this just, it just, this is where it's kind of almost heartbreaking how ignorant, and I would raise my hand, you know, I, I always, when I talk to people, I raise my hand most of my life. I've been very ignorant and I'm less ignorant now than I was, but I've still got a ways to go. But we all do. Uh, we, we need good Bible teaching. Well, thanks, Eric. Well said. I, I completely agree. And let me just say that this is why we're learning about, in the book of Revelation, when does wrath come upon the nations? It comes upon the nations in the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is the day of the Lord. It is an imminent proposition. When is it going to break forth? Jesus says how many different times in the Olivet Discourse, you don't know. So this is why judgment is always depicted in the New Covenant as something that's going to be experienced in the future. Think about Matthew 3, 7. Remember, John the Baptist says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? In Romans 2, 5, he says, in your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath right now. You're, in, you're incurring wrath that you're experiencing now. He says, no, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. The day of wrath is the day of the Lord. And when that happens, yes, the nations will be judged. But what, smacks, what strikes me and smacks me, I, I guess, is somewhat, it's a bad thing. It's almost as if Christians want the wrath of God here and now. Okay, that any given tornado was, well, that's the wrath of God and so-and-so, that's the wrath of God and so-and-so. Well, two things. Number one, what does it sound like to the world if you want to say, hey, I know you're hurting, but that was the wrath of God. Okay, now when the tornado wipes out our evangelical church, that's not the wrath of God. Okay, why? We don't have a prophet or apostle to tell us one way or the other, do we? Right? 
Now, the other thing is, if we're under the wrath of God, a lot of people, when we keep saying you're under the wrath of God, you're under the wrath of God, Jonathan Kahn keeps saying America's under the wrath of God. Well, the pagans and those who are the godless are doing the best. And it's the Christians who are the ones who are hurting. So the pagan would reason, if this is the wrath of God, this isn't so bad. Now, when you've just read the book of Revelation, when, when we lose a quarter of the earth's population followed by a third of the earth's population, you have a demonic armies coming out of the... Is that the same thing as what we're experiencing today? No. Okay? So I gave a message years ago at TCF. It was the risk of the church that cried wrath. And what I'm showing you is that if we follow Khan, because we get our categories wrong, we're going to be labeled the church that cried wrath and we're doing disservice to Christ's name. That's the grand point. By the way, Bob makes a great point with the Shemitah. This concept... Oh, yeah, Tom. Hold on. We're going to get, it, get you on tape. <laughs> That's right. So there's no modern-day prophets and yes. no modern-day apostles. Exactly. And so from a... I mean, I just... The way that I see a lot of these churches, because we came out of one, yep. <clears throat> was uh, really everybody has revelation. And uh, so as you look at revelation, you know, God told me this and God told me yeah. that. And, and it just... Um, what are you going to tell them? Well, you're confused. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I because know. really the only thing is the Bible. Exactly. And so Amen. they're all taking it pretty much out of context. But, man, church after church after yeah. church is is really going in that direction. Yeah. And Amen. Uh, it's just amazing to me. Thank you, Tom. Well said. Ephesians 2.20, the church has been built, past tense, on the, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Okay. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The imagery there is a foundation has been laid. Well, as the building's being built, you don't lay another foundation. You don't have layers and layers of the first foundation of apostles, prophets, and Christ. So just as you had a unique Christ, you have a unique set of apostles and prophets under the new covenant. So therefore, we shouldn't expect more. Exactly right. The they go. Exactly. Yep. Well I think said. they justify the direction that they go by... I'm a modern-day apostle, I'm a modern-day prophet, and, right. and that type of thing. So. Well said. Now, Bob reviewed a book, and I highly recommend his article about Jonathan Kahn's next book was about the Shemitah. In the Old Covenant, there was rest laws. Every seven years, the Jews had to allow their farmland to, re, to remain hot. They couldn't, uh, what is it called, fallow? They couldn't harvest it, right? They couldn't plant, etc. Well, are we bound by the Old Covenant? So if the church isn't bound by the Old Covenant, is America bound by the Old Covenant? No. So are we going to start telling farmers that they're sinning because they didn't allow their land to remain fallow and not harvested and worked, etc., every seven years? Well, of course we're not going to do that. So Bob basically pointed out to say, hey, if Jonathan Kahn, you're right, well, then you've got to tell all the farmers that they're sinning because they're not following the Old Covenant. So it just shows you the hypocrisy and the ludicrous nature of the book. So my big point that I want you to see is that in Revelation chapter 10, God is revealing his final mysteries that we're going to see through the rest of the book. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation, it's the capstone. So from Genesis to Revelation, God revealed himself. We should expect nothing more until he comes. So if someone's going to tell you that they're revealing a mystery... Again, it either has to be revealed in Scripture, therefore it's no longer a mystery. The only other two options are not good options. It's revealed by divination or it's simply made up in their imagination. I would claim that Jonathan Kahn is substituting inspiration for his imagination. And I would simply, based on Scripture, say that is not a valid prophecy. Okay? Now, with that, let's go to our next section here. 
we'll see how far we can get. We're in verses 8 through 11, and again, we're in a new section that takes us into the recommissioning of John. So just as Ezekiel was commissioned as a prophet to proclaim the wrath of God in the first chapters of Ezekiel, John is going to have the same recommissioning experience. Let me remind you of the interlude layout. Revelation 10, 1 through 7, we just look at that. We saw the angel with his announcement. There's going to be no more delay once the seventh trumpet is blown. Verses 8 through 11, we see the recommissioning of John. And then when we get to chapter 11, 1 through 14, it's going to be very exciting. The two witnesses are going to be proclaiming the gospel. Okay, so that's the interlude. And then after the interlude is over, in Revelation eleven fifteen, you have the commencement of the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet will open to the seven bowls, which culminates in the Messianic kingdom. Okay, so that's where we are. Okay, so let's look at verse 8 here, where we look at a better, bittersweet message of judgment. John continues, it says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So notice here John's revelation continues. He says, I heard a voice from heaven. Now, how do we know that these judgments are coming? Because they were revealed through John. Okay, so it's not that you and I say, well, I feel that judgments are coming, or I see a sign that judgments are coming. It's revealed to us through the Apostle John. Okay, that's how we know. Now, notice again the stance of this angel. Does everyone see where it says that he's standing on the sea and the land? Recall that that's significant because the angel, the angelos, is God's messenger sent to us. And so the fact that he stands on the sea and on the land shows us that God is ultimately sovereign. He's doing the bidding of God. So God is sovereign, therefore, over what? The whole world and all the things that happen in it. All of the judgments, they all proceed ultimately from God. Now notice I have an asterisk here. It says, and he said to me, this is from the New American Standard Bible. And for those of you that have it, I just want to clarify why our English versions do this and what's going on. The asterisk there is because it's really a present tense verb of lego, meaning he kept saying or he is saying. Okay? The present tense focuses on ongoing action. All right? But why does our English version put it in the past tense? Well, because it's easier for us to read, because these are things that are in our past. So when you're reading it, you could literally say, and he was saying to me. So think about it as John is revealing this have you all seen movies where the movie begins, uh, for, for instance, Saving Private Ryan? Did everyone see that? Where it starts off with the old man and it's in the present day. And then he'll speak about what was happening when he was in battle. And all of a sudden it breaks away back to the past. And the characters all speak in the present. Okay, in a sense, that's what John is doing. The reason he speaks in the present tense is he's showing you in real time, as it were, what was stated to him. So it's just like Saving Private Ryan where he's bringing you into the vision itself. Okay? Now, what's very interesting is here, John is no longer just going to be a spectator, but he is going to be a participant because he is going to eat the very <laughs> scroll that the angel gives him. He says, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. The implication, I think, of bittersweet is just as you and I would have the meaning today that is something is bitter 
It brings anguish, but it's also sweet and brings to our mind good things. The bitterness is the idea that God's judgment and wrath comes upon so many of those those in the world. But what's sweet is that God's saints are going to be vindicated, God's name is going to be glorified, and that we're going to reign with him. So this is a bittersweet message, and it's designed to bring us back to the time of Ezekiel, where the prophet Ezekiel also had to give a very bittersweet message to the people of Judah. It was bitter because the covenant people of God were engaged in idolatry, but it was sweet because God's name was going to be vindicated and his holiness maintained. And for that matter, the people of God, the prophets, were going to be vindicated as well. So I want to bring you to the bittersweet messages from the past. This is what John is building off of. He's making allusions to this. So again, thinking about the dictation theory of inspiration versus the verbal plenary, John is inspired by God to make connections back to Ezekiel. Okay, so he's seeing this in this vision, and he is writing this to show us the connection so that we would see the connection between Ezekiel's day and his. Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. This is Ezekiel speaking. It says, Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat the scroll. Sound familiar? And go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body and this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. So notice the sweetness from this judgment that Ezekiel was given. Again, he's proclaiming judgment upon the people of Judah. And it was sweet to Ezekiel in this sense, if you love God's righteousness and his holy and righteous standard, it was sweet. But to see the judgment come upon the people of God was also bitter. And we see the same thing, for example, in Ezekiel 21, verse 6. He says, As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan in their sight. Now, he says that right after a pericope in Ezekiel 21, where God has just laid out the fact that he's going to take the sword to the people of Jerusalem, to his very covenant people. And so that was a bitter thing for Ezekiel to see. So I think that that's the connection. So think about the wrath that came upon Israel in the day of the Lord, not now, but in Daniel's 70th week, that wrath is going to be turned against whom? The nations in the world. And again, it's a bittersweet thing. It's sweet because we're going to be vindicated, but it's bitter to see so many perish. And I think that that's the idea. Now, I think this ties into this idea that we should ask ourselves, how should we view judgment upon the lost? And what I would make the point is this. When we think about people suffering calamity today, what I think we should do now prior to the day of the Lord is to not rejoice or gloat. Why? Because we are people who are sinners saved by God's grace and we received his mercy. And so our job now during the church age is to desire others to experience God's grace and mercy as well. So during the church age, here would be my doctrine. I would say the time now to gloat is not here. Now we're very circumspect where those who don't gloat or rejoice over the destruction upon anyone. And, but what I'll show you is later in the book of Revelation, there's a time where we're actually commanded to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. But when does that happen? It happens in the future day of the Lord, where there's no chance for mercy anymore. 
God had given them time and the time was up. Okay, but for now, we should be circumspect. And I want to show you some evidence of this in Scripture. Proverbs, Proverbs 24, 16 through 20. Solomon writes, he says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, or Yahweh will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. So notice the principle here that when our enemy stumbles in calamity, that we shouldn't rejoice in it. And I think that that's wisdom that we still see in the new covenant as well, as I will show you. Okay? Now, let me show you another example from Job. Job asks a rhetorical question, which has an obvious answer. Job 31, 29, he says, Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? What's the obvious answer to those questions? No. And so what Job is just showing is that, look, there was... For all intents and purposes, he didn't know that he had done evil in that regard. Okay? So he was blameless as far as that was concerned. All right? Now, let me show you God's heart. Notice what God says in Ezekiel 18.23. He says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than he should turn from his ways and live? So we know, for example, in Romans 9, that God is going to be glorified in both his wrath, right? And also, that's the vessel's prepared for destruction, and also the vessels prepared for mercy. But God doesn't take the same pleasure in the vessels of destruction as he does in the vessels of mercy. We see that both in the old and the new. Now, what about our relationship with the wrath that comes upon people? Or I wouldn't call it wrath, but calamity. Well, notice Paul says here in Romans 12, 19 through 21. Now, here he's talking about taking revenge and avenging yourself for some wrong that an enemy performed upon you, but I think it applies to calamity as well. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, notice here in verse 20, or excuse me, what's highlighted red, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That comes from that Deuteronomy 32 passage that's very famous. Right after it says, In due time their foot will slip. Does anyone, does that ring a bell to anyone? That was the famous text that Jonathan Edwards preached, his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the text ultimately is about the judgment that would come upon Israel, but here it's being applied to the future day of the Lord. So in the future day of the Lord, God is going to bring his day of wrath upon them, and so you and I should be content with that. We don't have to avenge ourselves, and God is going to do it. That's the point. So in verse 20, he says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, notice this idea of feeding the enemy. If they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. This is something that Jesus taught. Remember that? So Paul is just simply taking the Lord's words and he's applying it. But then he adds this. He says, in so doing, you'll be heaping burning coals on his head. Now, that phrase, heaping burning coals on the head, has created a lot of different interpretations. Some think that the burning coals means that they're repenting. It's the idea almost of sackcloth and ash, that you're bringing the people to repentance because they feel so bad. But what's very interesting is all the way through the Old Testament, the idea of burning coals are always associated with the wrath of God. Okay, so for example, let me just give you some citations. You can write these down. We see the idea of judgment in 2 Samuel 22, 9 and 13 associated with burning coals. Psalm 18, 8, 
Psalm 18, 12. Job 41, 20 through 21. Ezekiel 24, 11. So exclusively through the Old Testament, we see the idea of burning coals associated with judgment. So the idea then that I think Paul is laying out is that if you do good deeds to your enemies and they still don't repent, it'll actually heap upon them more judgment, more culpability. Now, in saying that, I don't think Paul is saying, yeah, be really good to your enemy so that God will you know, judge them even more harshly. I think the idea that Paul is conveying is that, look, you really can leave it to the vengeance of God. If you do what you're required to do, which is to bless those who persecute you and hate you because you're a believer, God really will take care of it. That's what he's reassuring the believer, that there's no sin that's going to escape God. He really will work on our behalf. Yeah, Brian. Things that God wants us to do, some of them are easier to do than others. This, at least in my life, I don't know about, uh, I mean, I, uh, there's, uh, it's hard to do that. It is. Okay? It, you, you have to train yourself to do that. And uh, didn't even the saints, when they were in heaven, they were pleading with God, give them the exactly. thumbs down, let's get them out of here, let's right. go here. So. Well said. And in fact, we're reading about the answer to those prayers. Exactly right. But when does it occur? The day of the Lord. Exactly. So the idea is timing. So here's what I wanted to leave you with. What I see now in the church age prior to the day of the Lord breaking out, which is the 70th week of Daniel, it it, it begins with the rapture. Prior to that time, I think we should be temperate. When we see calamity befall people, we shouldn't say, hey, that's the wrath of God. That, you know, we should just be kind to them. We want God's grace upon them. But there will be a time in the day of the Lord when God's wrath comes upon the enemies of God, we should rejoice. And I want you to see that. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 18.20. You're going to see an imperative. This is a command given by God. This is the, top, the proper time to rejoice when our enemy stumbles. It's in the day of the Lord, not now. Revelation 18.20. Revelation 18.20, notice here, remember judgment has come upon both the uh, idolatry of Babylon, the harlot, the religious center of Babylon, but now also commercial Babylon. Revelation 18.20, the command given by God is rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Now, notice the term rejoice. That's an imperative. It comes from euphorino. Now, what's interesting about euphorino, the idea of rejoicing over seeing someone, you know, in calamity, that same term is used by the unregenerate unbelievers in Revelation 11.10 when they rejoice over the two witnesses dying. So when the two witnesses, and we're going to come to this, the next section, Two witnesses are speaking on behalf of God and the world puts them to death and they die. The unregenerate rejoice. What God is going to do is he's going to do a reversal where the enemies of God are going to be judged and you and I are going to rejoice. But the proper time to rejoice is not now during the church age where we want mercy and grace, but it's during the day of the Lord when the wrath is poured out. It's too late then for uh, mercy. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. And then Peter's got one, too. How are, how are we supposed to think about ISIS? How are we supposed to think about war? How are we supposed to think about 
going after someone who has really, uh, you know, going against us, really? How are we supposed to think about that? Great question. Yeah, very good. Let's, um, so, so here we saw a text in Romans 12 that says, you know, don't take vengeance in your own hands. You know, the Lord was going to take vengeance on our behalf. Here, here's a passage I would turn your attention to is Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, really. But uh, the first four verses talk about how the government does not bear the sword in vain. So the, the role of government is to restrain evil. So what I would say is that, biblically speaking, the role of the United States government is to kill ISIS. Okay? So the primary role of the government is to restrain evil. Now, Tom, I know you know Marxism better than I do in the studies of it. The Marxists want to bring utopia here. In a sense, they want to beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks by themselves. We know that only occurs when Messiah comes. They are the Messiah because they're their own God. Okay? Remember, Obama says, we're the ones we've been waiting for. Right? So what they, don't, what they learn is that... F- See, you and I say, well, we have to fight evil. That's what our government is to do. They say fighting is evil. So you and I say the role of government is to restrain evil. They say the role of government is to redistribute wealth, and they're going to bring the kingdom, okay? So that's the big divide. What should government do? That's what, if I was a Republican candidate, I'd get up and I'd say, you have a choice, America. You want your government to rest- redistribute wealth or restrain evil? Because if you're going to redistribute wealth, you'll be, evil will befall you. You'll be destroyed, just like all the other nations that tried it. But if you want to do it, and restrain evil, you're going to be a prosperous nation. What are we going to do with government? I tell you, when we collectively put our money together, I don't think that the idea of collectively putting all of our money together was to be a great Ponzi scheme for Social Security and all that. The role of it is to restrain evil. And so to answer it biblically, the reason why ISIS should be wiped out and we don't say, hey, I won't take vengeance upon them, is because it's the role of government. The role of government is to restrain evil by going after the evildoer. And so they're actually ordained by God to do so. Now, in my private life, if someone cuts me off or even tries to do harm to me, I can protect myself physically, but if there's something that's, you know, they're, they're trying to attack me, I get the government involved because the government's been ordained by God to restrain evil, not me. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that, that's where we... So I'm glad you bring that up because... I don't want anyone to come away from this message saying, well, Eric thinks that it's okay to be gentle to ISIS. No, we should kill them and by in gobs of them. <laughs> right, but it's the government that does it. Okay, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, Eric, two things, I guess. From their perspective, uh, what you're saying is subjective. Who, I'm sorry, whose perspective? The... ISIS, maybe. Oh. ISIS, yeah. From their perspective... You know, truth and righteousness is subjective. In other words, from their point of view, they're doing what is right. That's one comment. Now, I agree with you wholeheartedly, yeah. but, you know, uh, that's what they believe, even if it's wrong. Right. The, the, the other exactly. thing is, what is it about us? I mean, is it our sin nature that wants to ex- extract equity here and now? Yeah. The flesh? I think it is. Um, the first, first of all, I would say with ISIS, they're not subjectivists. They're not relativists. They objectively believe their understanding of the Quran is correct. So what I would say is you have, we, we're objectivists. We believe that the scripture is right, but the scriptures are right. Okay? So what I would say is when they do something in the name of God, 
They're really just heaping up wrath for themselves. It's, it's evil. So just as Hitler thought that he was doing good, we didn't buy into it. We said, no, it's objectively evil. We're going to fight you. Our government's going to wipe you out. The same thing has to be applied to ISIS. They, make, make, they may make all sorts of claims. We judge it in light of Scripture. We know it's not true. Our government should fight them. Um, what was the other point? I'm sorry, the... Oh, our, our sin nature. Yeah, I think there, there's an element of pride that we long to vindicate our own name. Um, we also, I think we have a God-given right to protect ourselves. By the way, the, um, remember in Matthew 5, when you're slapped across the cheek, you're not to return in kind. That is more of an insult than it is a strike. We know that because the back of the hand has to be used. So I don't think that a Christian is limited in protecting themselves physically. But it's really what you see in the ancient Near East is there was a, a goal to always vindicate the name of the family. Bob's talked a lot about this is it's tribalism. So what happens in Western culture is tribalism is removed. And what you do is you have the government restrain evil. So God starts doing that by like cities of refuge. So you can flee to a city of refuge so that you don't have this tribalism, this endless vendettas like in Romeo and Juliet, right? The two families that are always warring and killing each other. So God's word brings about government that's to restrain evil. Now, think about this. As the country becomes more Marxist, they want to go back to tribalism. We just had a case where a little girl who was six years old was removed from her foster home. Why? Because she was 128th or 164th Indian. Okay? Because tribe matters more than values. But you and I say, no, that doesn't matter, slave nor free nor Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female. God doesn't care about any of that, you see. But as the world becomes more Marxist, it's going to lose the Judeo-Christian ethic and it'll become more tribal again. And because you and I are not seeing just the collapse of America, we're seeing the collapse of Western civilization that was founded uh, and it's replaced by Marxism, yeah. Excuse me. Um, Getting back to... uh, our attitude toward our enemies. Could you yeah. comment on David's imprecatory psalms where he talks about yeah. how, he, wishes. how he you know, tells God to get them and so forth? Yeah, yeah, very well said. You know what's interesting is you see the same prayers in Revelation 6. And what's interesting is I think that's the appropriate place for it. Notice David, for example, think about Nabal. So here's what I'm saying is he gives it to God. God, you take care of him. Okay, isn't that what it says in Romans 12? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So let's take a concrete example where he could have extracted vengeance. Remember Nabal the fool? David and his men are protecting his vineyard. Well, Nabal is not going to give money that was due to... He's King David, he's king over Israel. He's due some money from this man. Plus, he's been protecting his crops. And yet Nabal won't give him anything. And remember, Nabal's name literally means fool. So David is going to wipe him out. Well, who intercedes? Abigail. And even David says, you kept me from doing this evil because he was going to take vengeance himself. So my point is, by declaring his attitude, Lord, you take care of it, it's the exact same thing that we're really seeing in Paul in, in Romans 12. God, you take care of it. Do you see what I'm saying? But he's not doing it himself. Now, as king over Israel, he has to protect his nation and he wars but against his personal enemies, he, I think he gives it up to God. Yeah, I think it's the same attitude. So 
Very good challenge. Yeah. Sorry, we're out of time. I'll finish the last slide when we, we get together next time. But thank you all. I just love our discussions. And yeah. One, one last thing. Oh, yeah. Listen to this. Hey, this, is our, this is our last uh, Sunday here, and then next Sunday we'll be at the uh, Senior Center out in Edina. So if there's any able-bodied people that could meet at 815, there, it's going to be a little uh, more first time setting up for Bible study and then the uh, other uh, uh, room where the uh, service is going to be. So 815, that'd be great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. We'll just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time together. We thank you for your word that you revealed through the prophets that we're not left in darkness, that we may know who you are and what you require. I ask for my brothers and sisters that you give them stamina. Remind them always that vengeance is coming on their behalf, but it's coming through your hand and that they would be salt and light in this decaying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.